1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. And every once in a while, I like to step back in front of the microphone. My duties have me doing other things on the network. But when I see a book and read a book like Kyle Nolan's The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost... This is the kind of thing I read before bed. I don't know what that says about me. But uh, I read the book and I liked it very, very much. And so I said, I have to talk to this gentleman about this book because it actually has, unlike many military history books, a thesis. And unusually, I'm going to start the interview by reading the thesis, which, as I told Cahill at the beginning of the interview, appropriately appears throughout the book. But it's the In the first paragraph, the conclusion, like, that's a novel idea. Good idea. So here's what Cahill says. Starting in the Renaissance, European intellectuals, followed only much later by experimenting generals commanding real armies, looked to classical models of decisive battle as an elusive alchemist secret, the key to transmitting princely ambition and will into lasting success in politics through war. This book has argued... That military intellectuals afterward moved too far in that direction, ultimately to the Clausewitzian ideal of climactic battle as the culmination of all operations, and to generals of genius as the instrument of the perfect war." That's a lot to unpack, and we're going to do it in this hour, or however long it takes. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the show. So, let me
2: ask this to begin with: Why did you write this book? General dissatisfaction with, <laughs> with, with. Well, I'm. You're going to say you're going to think I'm going to say with the <laughs> profession, but that's not it. General dissatisfaction with my teaching. Dissatisfaction with. Um, What I was telling my students, I started out at Boston University teaching diplomatic and political history, teaching the history of Renaissance diplomacy and, you know, very refined things like that. And I just found myself stumbling into war constantly. You bump into it constantly. And I felt I was teaching my students the wrong things that, and I say this with no pleasure whatsoever, war is at the heart of international relations and of history. The profession, uh, here I will criticize my profession, has wandered far from that. Um, Hardly studies war at all, uh, doesn't really promote or even read military history. Partly that's the fault of military historians. I think more it's the fault of the larger profession, and it's move away from the idea that war is a, gener- a, a generator of enormous change in history. So it was dissatisfaction with what I was saying in the classroom and wanting to say it... um better than I had said it before.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a good answer. I will take on the profession for you as I'm no longer in it. Lucky, (laughs) yeah. So the uh, yeah, I I run a podcast network. I'm not sure how lucky that is, but the uh, well, you reach more people. That's true. We reach a lot of people, and that's one of the reasons I do this to bring our audience people like you who have good things to say. But I will say this about military history: I, as I said in the pre-interview, was one of these people that got into military history when I was very young, and I got into. I come from a military family, and I got into the guns and tanks and planes ends of things. So, uh, as I said, I know way more about tanks than a normal person should, and I, I tend to exaggerate their relevance, and that is the relevance of all arms and of great generals, and of particular kinds of armies and even particular generals in those armies. And th- this is uh, doesn't lead to a healthy outlook when it comes to evaluating how wars are won and lost, as you point out in the book. So I, I won't say that most of my colleagues who write military history do this. I, I did some of it, I have to say. But I think for general readers of military history, there's way too much emphasis on what we would call the tactical or operational levels of
2: military even, conflict, even just even just guns and trumpets.
1: Yes, guns and trumpets. Yes, cavalry charges and these kinds of things. And as I say, decisive decisive moments, moments and turning points. Always looking for turning points. And uh, as you point out in the book, there really aren't very many of those. Usually, they are, they happen before the war starts.
2: <laughs> well, or there are there are turning points in a war, but. But not a single, not not a not a fulcrum moment where people are always looking for this is the precise moment, and they'll even sometimes come down to like you say, a cavalry charge or a hoplite charge or or yeah, a decisive a single decision at Waterloo, as if Waterloo decided the Napoleonic Wars, um, which it didn't. It was the exclamation point. I, I, I would. Say. Yeah, I. I, I- I, I was going to say,
1: I had a particular moment when I was reading a book by, I think his name is David Stahill. Is that his name? Yes, yes.
2: yes. Stahl or Stahl, Stahl.
1: Yeah. Anyway, we interviewed him on the network and uh, he was like, you know, and I know everything about the Eastern Front because I was a Russianist. And he's like, the uh, essentially, the German campaign was over at the Battle of Moscow. I was like, yes. what?
2: <laughs> Arguably the war. Yeah, right. The war was caused.
1: It was done was in December of 1941. That was it. And I was like, wow, I didn't ever think of that before. And your book kind of expands on this sort of thesis that is that the strategic level really has been neglected and the people that prosecuted those wars have neglected it. But anyway, let's start at the beginning and back to the thesis and this notion that and I'm going to ask you to say a little bit about these three levels, tactics, operations, and strategy, and how the operational, as it's still called in the U.S. Army, I think every Everybody on the like company level has an S three or something, and that's the operations yeah. officer. And I was like, "What is that? That's the guy that actually plans the battle." And and so, can you talk a little bit about the origins of this snowman? The, the
2: well, yeah, go ahead. You explain the snowman. Right? Yeah, no, you explain the snowman. Go ahead. Well, it's just the it's the notion that um, uh, the three levels of military um, function uh the head, the strategy, the operations, the sort of um mid level uh but key uh element in large formations and then the tactics which are how you take a particular pillbox or a machine gun or a hill or or, or whatever, um those are interrelated. But most people if you look at war movies, it's all about tactics. It's about platoon level, company level, and so on. Um operations generally is how you conduct not even a single battle or a part of a battle but a campaign. So if, if tactics are how you win a fight, uh, operations are how you win a campaign, strategy, however, is how you win the war. And in modern German history in particular, but also Japanese and others, um, the whole, military, whole professional officer corps have virtually not studied strategy or considered strategy at all. They concentrated as professional officers on tactics, and at the uh, planning level on operations and my argument um and others have said it as well my argument is fundamentally that um you you start a war with the idea that you're going to win through your superior operations your superior skill your superior your triumph of the will or as the japanese called it your your superior spirit spirituality even and you're going to lose at the strategic level if you haven't factored in the massive uh, coalition that you're likely to provoke into existence against you, even if it's not there at the start. It has happened so often.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the incredible thing is that that's I, I told you earlier when we were talking is that kind of the scales fell from my eyes when I looked at everything from the strategic level, and that is beginning with Frederick the Great in the 18th century. And he is the kind of, at least as I understood the book, he's the kind of progenitor of this warrior-king who can win through operations, even though strategically he doesn't have the resources to win a big war. And then he passes Napoleon. And
2: Prussia was a small state uh, surrounded by much larger, more populous enemies. Um, and he started uh, a sequence of wars that, if you put them together, lasted 23 years. There's an interesting coincidence how many Long generations of wars have actually lasted 23 years or so. The wars of Frederick the Great, the wars of the French Revolution. Um, But these are generation-long wars. And I think that's one of the keys. You don't win them until the generation has fought them and is fought out and is exhausted on one side usually just before the other side becomes exhausted. Mm-hmm. And, and can you talk a little bit about the atmosphere?
1: You talk s- to some degree about the Enlightenment and, and Renaissance thinking Clausewitz and Yomini and these people about uh, what what Frederick and others like him, Napoleon later, were thinking about how to win on the operational level in what you call, use German terms for this, and I think that's appropriate, the 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 battle of annihilation that will just bring your enemy to his knees In a single battle. In a single battle and will give you the political result you want which turns out almost never happens. Right. But Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
2: The, I mean, the other, I think the sort of plain English term for the idea of the battle of annihilation is the ideal of the battle of envelopment. Uh, uh, in other words, you send your forces, you hold at the center in some way, you send your forces through the flanks, you punch holes through his line, or you somehow get around the flanks, you get into the rear area, you disrupt his communications, his supply and so on. But the ideal is not, you can do that on a campaign, that makes a lot of sense. The ideal here is that you do it in an afternoon. You do it, you get around behind uh, his rear area, you envelop his army, and then you crush it. The other German term uh, was a a, a cauldron, a cauldron fight.
1: The Kesselschlacht.
2: Right, the Kesselschlacht, where
1: you would literally... I shouldn't even know that. It's pathetic that I know that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Envelop the army, and then the idea, and that's a very brutal metaphor, and basically you boil them to death inside the castle. Um, you, you cook them alive. Uh, and this was the ideal. And this ideal in German theory and in operational theory is an ideal of the 19th century that's rooted, I think, in two things. It's, it's rooted primarily in um, the tactics and the campaign and the purported genius of Napoleon, which uh, people, especially Germans, more than the French actually, sought to emulate in later decades. But then you get Schlieffen come along in the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century, and he had, it's absolutely astonishing. Uh, to me, it's just astonishing that the Germans conduct write out battle plans. They work on them for almost 20 years, and then they actually conduct the opening phase of the First World War on plans whose model is the victory of Hannibal of Carthage over the Romans more than 2,000 years earlier. Who, can I, who bases, who bases uh, a, a great power war plan On a German model, uh, pardon me, on a Roman model, two thousand years old. Well, the Germans. It's it's and it's why they lost. I mean, it's also not at all an accident. Hannibal Barca uh, inflicted the worst defeat on the Roman army uh, ever at Cannae. Seventy thousand, we think, legionaries were killed. He lost about five thousand. It was a classic battle of envelopment. It has become the ideal of all subsequent uh, operational plans and tactical plans to, to to envelop the army and destroy him in an afternoon. Hannibal, Barca, and Carthage lost the war. <laughs> the Germans might have noted this, that after the victory at Cannae, it bogged down into uh, into a long war, the Second Punic War, of um, destruction of the Carthaginian forces, in which the Romans avoided fighting Hannibal because he was a superior general. And instead, they undercut his supplies, they undercut his reinforcements, they attacked Carthage in Spain and in Africa and not in Italy, and, uh, yeah. and, they, and they won.
1: Yeah, but the the remarkable thing to me is, and again, this was where I was just kind of dumbstruck, is that things didn't turn out well for Frederick and they didn't turn out well for Napoleon. No,
2: they both lost. I mean, in Frederick's case, Frederick is put forward by, um, and we were talking about this just in the sort of the pre-interview. I do think one of the problems here is that intellectuals write history and they admire what they see as themselves in history. And Frederick was the quintessential intellectual of the the Enlightenment century. I mean, he was considered, I mean, he was a a composer of note, uh, wrote treatises on science and on politics, on government and philosophy. Uh, Voltaire corresponded with him for for over 40 years. Uh, He was going to be the great Enlightenment despot that the Enlightenment was looking for. He turned out just to be a despot. uh, And he also turned out to be a reckless adventurer when it came to his foreign policy. In, uh, in the end, um, because of these fundamental disadvantages Prussia had, that he got them into wars against a coalition of great powers. A Russian army was on its way to Berlin to crush him. Frederick it was wide open. He couldn't stop it. Frederick was contemplating suicide and uh, wrote to his advisors to try and save what they could of the realm. When an accident of birth and death, the czar died, was replaced by a czar, a younger czar, who um, uh, fancied, fancied Frederick and called the army off. Frederick himself, a notorious agnostic, referred to it as the miracle of the House of Brandenburg. Right? I mean, it's, and you think about this, and then to, to jump ahead, and without making too close a parallel, in his last days, Hitler is thinking um, that this ridiculous situation that he has forced on Germany by the same uh, short-term thinking can somehow be saved by a death. Uh, of Stalin or Roosevelt or Churchill or something like that, that he's he's still really thinking in terms of maybe there'll be a miracle of the house of Nazism, and, 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 and if, it, it, if accounts are to be believed,
1: he had a portrait of
2: oh, yeah, Frederick the Great. All, 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 I mean, Frederick the Great is still, I mean, even today, still was really <laughs> the greatest of Germans. And he uh, he denuded the Prussian population. I mean, they lost 10% of their population, which is just an enormous um, uh, the the their Prussia was ravaged by foreign armies. He invited invading armies in through his reckless policies and so on. But he's the greatest of Germans, yeah. And I think that he was intellectual, and I think that too many uh, too many intellectuals admire him for that. He was also a misogynist and an anti semite, so but that's all right. Yeah. So, but, but
1: can you talk a little bit about Napoleon? Because Napoleon looms large over the entire 19th century, obviously. Uh, the, the Sort of what I would say the myth and reality of Napoleon as you understand
2: it. Well, look, I mean, this, look, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that Napoleon was not a very good commander. I mean, he was the best. He was by far and away uh, the greatest uh, commander of the era of horse and musket warfare. He was also the last, and I think that's much more important for historians to note than what they have done, which is to say he was the greatest, emulate what he did, study his witty sayings, study his battle plans, do what he did, and you will win at war. When in fact, I think by the end, uh, he had he maximized, he was very skillful, he had a, an eye for not just the battle, but the campaign that was, on, I think, unparalleled, uh, didn't mean he won all the time, but he was better than anybody he faced. You wanted to be very careful going up against him. You wanted to have superior numbers, which everybody did after 1812, because of his catastrophic mistakes in Spain and his catastrophic mistakes in invading Russia. The coalitions came together. Everybody reformed their armies to the degree that they could, so that by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, they kind of all looked the same, more or less. They have this divisional structure, and they have Um, large-scale infantry and their mass armies are not the professional armies with which the war began, and the French are just overpowered and worn down in a 23-year contest of attrition. Um, Napoleon, uh, you know, Clausewitz referred to him, which is really quite remarkable, Clausewitz referred to him as the god of war. He actually said that twice. Um, And I think what you have in retrospect is um, snapshots, theoretical snapshots of uh, the way war was at a particular moment when uh, there was more opportunity for singular battle and singular generalship. But it passed. It passed even in Napoleon's lifetime, even during Napoleon's career, uh, because his early fights were with smaller armies on Western European road systems, which were dense networks where you could be dexterous and you could move and you could forage off the rich farmland. And then he went to Poland and then he went to Russia. And there are fewer roads, and he took six hundred thousand men, not sixty thousand men and You can't be dexterous with six hundred thousand men and yet that's what we studied that's what was taught, and what's coming as you know, what's coming in the nineteenth century is armies out of six of six hundred thousand men in the in the in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen teens what's coming is armies of millions of men, and by the middle of the twentieth century, literally tens of millions of men. These are not armies that are subject to dexterous manipulation, operational brilliance, genius in war, these are going to slog it out, wear each other down like sumo wrestlers before one finally collapses. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: let's give the proponents of operational genius uh, some of their due, I think, because it, it seems to have worked uh, in the wars of German unification yes. to some extent. Can you talk about those? Sure.
2: Because they also loom very large over what happens later. Right. I mean, I mean the the probably the main criticism that the book has received is why I left out the American civil war. I mean, I have about 15 pages on it, but that's not a lot. Um, and there are two answers to that. One is the book's already 700 pages. Do you really want <laughs> uh, But I did think about it. But the reason is, the reason actually is, although you and I and other people looking back now look at the Crimean War before the wars of German unification and the American Civil War just a year before the really the, the major German wars of unification, um, and we say those are the wars that portend the future. Those are the wars that that really tell us what was coming in the 20th century. And I think that's correct. But it's not what they concluded at the time. The European militaries, which were globally dominant, uh, looked at the Crimean War and thought, well, it's only against the Russians, and it's way over there, and it wasn't a general war, and they drew almost no lessons from it. They looked at the American Civil War, and they said, uh, pardon me, but we actually have their observer reports. And with rare exceptions, they essentially said, bunch of amateurs, we have nothing to learn from this. That's not how we're going to fight. Then they looked at the German Wars, which the first German war, the Austro-German War, uh, the Austro-Prussian War uh, in 1866, just a year after the American uh, Civil War ends, and a great power is destroyed in seven weeks. And four years later, France, an even greater power, is destroyed by the Germans in six months. And it looks like the notion of Napoleonic swift victory and battles of annihilation are in play, and it just captures the world's military imagination. For the next 50 years, they don't look at the Civil War. They don't look at the trenches around Petersburg. They don't look at the blockade and the Anaconda Plan and the slow crushing and the 600,000 casualties. They look to Molk and uh, Molk the Elder and Bismarck's uh, short, swift wars against Austria and France, and they say, This is the future of war. They're going to rush into it in 1914, and they're going to get a war of attrition. Did the Americans think that too? Because I, I you know,
1: again, I, I don't want to. Uh, move too far forward in the book because we'll get to it. But, uh, the Americans come off pretty well here because they're often thinking strategically, whereas other powers mm. are not. What do you think? Well, what I'm thinking about is that, um, uh, with, with some exceptions, I study Vietnam. So, uh, uh, the Americans were thinking in strategic terms about what they could and could not do. And, in Vietnam. Well, not in Vietnam, no. <laughs> well, they, they kind of did. I, I could talk a lot about that. But um, right. I just am asking, what, what did the Americans learn from the Civil War? Do you know?
2: Well, uh, I think the professional military, um, this is not my area of core specialty, but my understanding is that the American military officer corps, like the European officer corps, was bedazzled by Napoleon. Uh, and so the Germany dominated in the teaching. Um, uh, and so you do have decisive battle thinking, short war thinking in the American. Case. I think it was a global phenomenon with very rare, uh, exceptions. Um, the Americans, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how you say they come off that well in the book. Uh, the, the American entry into the First World War is, uh, obviously late from many points of view, but more importantly, And here, I think, is a larger lesson. The American army is unprepared. It's got, for the First World War, obviously, it's got uh, outdated doctrine. Its commanders are perhaps more overrated today than they deserve to be. Uh, And it suffered terrible casualties in 1918, more than the other Allied armies. And I think the lesson to be learned from that is not that the Americans were amateur, not that the Americans were inept, but that it's really hard to learn the lessons of war from someone else's experience. It's hard to learn even from your own. And, yeah, and they, I, they did not learn it from the European experience. I, I guess one of the
1: reasons I think the Americans and the British come off pretty well, and actually the French do too, at least I think, is that first of all, they didn't start these things like the Germans and the Japanese did. And then when they got involved in them, they definitely played the long game, particularly in World War II.
2: This is definitely true of the French and the British, I think, yes. yeah, yes. They, they and, the American, in- and the Americans in World War II, yes. Yeah, because you know, they,
1: again, I'm going back to my family history of that You know, that the American Army gets there firstest with the mostest, and and logistics is a very important part of uh, American military doctrine. The tail of any U.S. military unit is enormous logistical tail. Mm-hmm.
2: Bigger than uh, any other military I think yeah
1: point. like we actually I sometimes ask you know my students when I had students is you know I said interested in a career in the military and they're like I don't want to kick in a door and I said the chances that you're gonna to have to kick in a door are about zero um, you're more likely to drive a truck uh, and 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 I guess what I'm saying about the Americans is that they obviously paid a lot of attention and it's partially due to, due to being overseas they have to move all of that stuff
2: that's what makes them logistical masters um, yeah no, but, but each time it's a, Improvised logistical genius because, and that's the only way I'll use genius about war, um, organizational capabilities. But it's improvised because the Americans, as you know, are infamously unready for virtually every war they get into until after World War II when they finally go to a large scale permanent standing army. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true.
1: Yes. I guess, again, to go back to what I said, is that we, we didn't, uh, we, uh, the Americans didn't start these things. And then once they uh, were in them, they, they took the long view generally, and they used their incredible industrial capacity and all the engineering involved to move incredible numbers of troops and materiel uh, to foreign shores to fight.
2: Which, and I think uh, this is also very true of the British, and that's an underestimated, underreported um, feature of the British way of war. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 20th century, and also of the French, uh, who um, just get a, I think a, a dreadfully unfair reputation in the United they States. They do, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. and, yeah. and by British historians, I mean I'm not going to name who I was on a panel with recently, but the man sat there making sort of jokes about the French constantly, and and and, and it's like. This is your key ally in the 20th century. Uh, you yeah. went to war with them. You, you you each lost millions of men together. The French army, more than any other military, was responsible for the defeat of Germany, in my view, in 1914 to 1918, with mm-hmm. significant assistance from the British and the Commonwealth, and very late, relatively minor assistance from the United States. Yeah. Now the fact that it fell apart in in the First World War was a shock to everybody and changed the whole nature of that war, including requiring the Americans eventually to get in on the ground and large scale forces, but. But this this sort of silly, um, almost you know, Homer Simpson dismissal of the of the French army, it's it's really unfortunate, I think. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate too. So let's move on to World
1: War One, and uh, let me ask you this: I, I know that this makes a very complicated thing uh, simple, but uh, you probably have to do this in your teaching, although we're not supposed to. Did, did the Germans start World War One? Is that decided now? Uh, Are we? Are we done with that? No, the historians (laughs) are going to argue about everything.
2: Always, you know. Um, Each new generation comes along, and somebody has to have a thesis. So, you know, they'll they'll revisit and they'll reargue it. So the argument just is is still ongoing. Um, It it would be wrong to say that you know you that that the historical profession has pronounced that the Germans started World War One. But if you're asking my view and that of many other people, yes, it's clear. It's clear. Yes. And and you put it in a particular
1: framework, and that is of, and this counts for Frederick, not so much for Napoleon, but it also counts again in the wars of German unification, and it counts in both World War I and World War II for both the Japanese and the German sides. And this is of a power that has pretensions to become a world power, a Weltmacht, but somehow the politicians know that time is running out that
2: they're on window a clock. of opportunity, yep.
1: And yes, and that this leads them to exaggerate incredibly the operational abilities of their militaries. And that and that, and in these cases, especially the German and the Japanese, the militaries are more than willing to play along.
2: Well they also underestimate the military capabilities and strategic depth of their enemies. So it's a there's a psychology in play whereby if you're you're committed to becoming a world power, it's a cultural, deep cultural commitment across the civilian and military and intellectual uh, elites. Um, the people aren't asked. Uh, this is what you're committed to, uh, and that is going to require, given your geopolitical situation and your, that's going to require war at some point. So you're committed to war. You're committed to winning through war, but you know that the coalition opposing you is already world power status or will be overwhelming uh, and you take on war anyway. To me, that is the story of the Japanese and the Germans in the 20th century, that they take on war, not because they thought we can win and these other guys are, we can just roll them aside and we'll win quickly. They take it on knowing that they're probably going to lose, but they will not give up on war as an instrument of achieving what they would call national greatness or, you know, Weltmacht status.
1: Weltmacht, yeah. So uh, how, how did, can you talk a little bit about what the Germans thought was going to happen in 1914 with the funch
2: Plan? Did well, have, I mean, yeah. it depends who you mean. I mean, I think it's really <laughs> important to, uh, to point out that the civilians started the war. Then they turned to the generals and said, okay, fight it. And the generals had to take out a plan that was literally in a safe, you know, which we call the Schlieffen Plan for you know, shorthand purposes, um, which the commander in chief uh, Helmut von Mok, this is the nephew of the elder Mok of the mid 19th century. So it's Molk the Younger. Um, uh, and, and he, uh, he uh, for the last, for the 10 years before the war has been um, chief of the great general staff. And he doesn't believe the plan can work. Not that it, he just doesn't believe it can work. He cannot move as many men along the right wing as uh, are required by the plan, given the number of railways and roads, given the French resistance, given et cetera. He doesn't think it can work. They tinker with it. They amend it. Um, there will be endless arguments about whether his tinkering caused the failure of the plan. But in fact, the plan was doomed to failure. And this is really hard for even some military historians to accept because they say, well, surely the Germans wouldn't go into a war with a plan they knew that that, that wouldn't work. Yes, they did. They actually did. Um, and I think the phrase that captures, how do you explain that then? The phrase that captures it comes from another German, a very famous German, and that's Otto von Bismarck, who referred to the decision to make war as rolling the iron dice of war. It's a gambler's choice. Um, do you really think that putting everything on 32 or on black, you know, when you're at Vegas, you put the mortgage on the kids' college funds, is actually going to win? Do you really think it? At the moment, you do. And you roll the dice, and you lose everything. And they roll the dice of war into an absolute catastrophe. Not once, but twice in the twentieth century. Yeah, we're going to come to the the,
1: <laughs> the virtual repeat, and that's another thing that I really liked about your book is that I, I for some reason, I'd forgotten that the German. If you just take Hitler and, and all, you, you really shouldn't, of course. But if you take all of the other extraneous and horrible parts about the Nazis, yeah. Hitler's regime out, yeah, the Nazis out. They fought World War Two. They, they, go- <laughs> yeah. they were going to do it, it again. They were, and I suspect they anyway. were going to do it again. Same
2: thing. Yeah, I, I, and I was. Just, I, mean, I, I sometimes uh, say to my uh, students, "Look, you can't prove a kind of. I mean, you can't prove this statement. It's kind of factual, but um, uh, 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 and you can um, But would we have had a Second World War without the Nazis? I think the answer is yes." But not the war that we got, because they gave it additional perversions and um, uh, and, and and a unique evil that we had not. Seen. But we would have had a catastrophic Second World War, I suspect, because the First World War was utterly indecisive on the only issue that mattered: would Germany willingly or by force accept a reduced place in the world, and it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. One of the things you point out at the book
1: is that the case of the Germans and the Japanese, particularly who are the primary aggressives here, that, is that they uh, they they fail so utterly on the strategic level. First of all, in the planning stage, because they're probably going to lose. And you know, it's, I, I don't know as an American, I think you probably shouldn't fight wars that you don't think you can win. That's like one of the
2: parts of yeah, but we do it. War, t- yeah, right? we do it it's too. Like, yeah, we, do, we it. do it too.
1: Yeah, that's just letting blood, and we don't like doing that. I know, sensible person does, but then they have no exit strategy at oh. all.
2: Just, just none. At I all. think. And, and go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think one of the things that, to be honest, and I was surprised by the things I ended up concluding when i was writing this book you know when you write a book that you actually you're thinking changes in the course of the writing yes. and so forth in fact it's probably the only time you're actually really thinking is when, <laughs> it's, it's, it's when you have to write it down and you're not just pontificating in front of 18 year olds um yeah. uh, who you know who, who who think you're the god of war as well um but uh well maybe not my students. Um, at any rate uh yeah i'm sorry i lost my train of thought
1: well, we were talking about how they didn't have any sort of
2: exit plan. Yeah, I think one of the astonishing things that, 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 that came to me is just how often it is that wars are started by people who actually, forget exit strategy, they don't have a plan to win. They, they don't actually have a plan to win. So they just they, the, 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 the most vacuous assumptions are made about how, well, we'll just win quickly. Look at the opening of the American Civil War. We'll take Richmond. We'll take Washington. Uh, there were people who said that wasn't the case. There were people who saw that long war was coming and so on, but the majority of people thought it's going to be over. The short war delusion is an astonishing recurring pattern in military history. The notion that we could start it, we could, or more recently for me, in many of your listeners' personal, uh, experience is we did the thunder runs into Baghdad, uh, thinking we knock out the Iraqi army and that's it. We win, uh, cause we're thinking in traditional state versus state. Uh, ways and we just smashed this million man army and we did we smashed the million man army in like five or six weeks and we're still there yeah yeah that's right we are
0: so this episode is brought to you by shopify <coughs> do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: The other interesting thing is, is that they don't give up on winning, even though they have lost an incredible number of men and a huge amount of treasure. in After 1914, after the short uh moment where right. they're actually maneuvering in the field and then when things become I forget the German word for this that you use, the, uh, the Yeah, More the material the, but yeah, but also the, the Sitzung Krieg oh, or whatever they call it. Sitzkrieg, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of a
2: pun, yeah, like,
1: yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Where they're just basically sitting in one place. sitting, Nobody sitting moves. War, yeah. yeah. They they don't they don't go anywhere. Uh they continue to launch these enormous offensives with the same result, essentially. What was the thinking behind that?
2: Well, everybody, that's not just the Germans. I mean, from 1914, well, from the end of 14 through, um, for the Allies, really into 1917, the idea of having to, look, the flanks are gone. The trenches on the Western Front run literally, they literally dip into the Atlantic on the Belgian coast. They go all the way down, climb up part of the mountains in the Alps until you don't, you don't need to climb any higher because the mountains do it for you. 440 miles of trench systems that got deeper and denser in depth um, until they were 14, 15 miles deep on either side of no man's land, impenetrable for the most part. And everybody had to try and figure out this is a new way of war. So they, the initial basically year and a half or two years was to attempt to smash holes through it, then pour your army through the hole, because what you're trying to do is reestablish flanks. There are no flanks. Tactics and operations are all about the flanks. How do we get around the flanks, get behind the flanks, get through the flanks, get to the rear, and so on? Well, you can't. Cavalry is useless. Uh, you have artillery, and you have to punch a hole through, then you pour the infantry through. When the infantry gets through, gets through six or seven miles, they could break through and did so regularly. They couldn't sustain the momentum. This is true in both directions. So it partly, it's just the generals are learning. The armies are learning. They will actually learn how to do this. And by 1916, the Russians actually do it first. They break through the German trenches, the Austrian trenches in the east, very successfully before anyone else does. The Germans do it in the east. Then everybody does it in the west in 1918. And we're back to a war of movement. People forget this. I mean, the, the World War I did not end with the people suddenly surrendering in the trenches. The trenches were smashed. The armies came out of the trenches, and they were moving again. And casualties were very high. And we had tanks and aircraft, and the Germans retreating to the Rhine, and... Uh, and, and all of that stuff. But the thinking is simply still that once they're in the war, they couldn't get out. Uh, and I think here we have to back it up to the, to the civilians. The, the, the war was started, I think, by cabals of small elites in various capitals in Europe. So the elites started it, but the peoples took it over. And this is what the elites didn't even foresee. So World War I became a total war, a people's war, because the people's, once you kill people's sons and fathers and treasure, they're committed so that the governments, even if they had wanted to get out, in many cases could not have gotten out without being lynched, hanged uh, by their own populations. So in 1917, I mean, again, we sort of read the poets and we look back and we say how sad the war was. And. And and we we, we like to think, and I think it's too often falsely taught to our students, that the elites and the generals waged the war and the average soldier didn't want to be there and didn't believe in the war. And isn't it tragic? Well, actually, they did want to be there. They did uh, believe in the war. They continued to go back after every leave. They continued to hate each other and kill each other up to the order of nine to 10 million before it was over. You have to explain that in a different way than they were all there involuntarily. They believed in their nation's causes uh in the in the nineteen twenties um early nineteen twenties i mean Haig, who was considered considered today by some almost a you know a war criminal for his waste of life at Passchendaele and the Somme and so forth uh he was elected head of the uh British Veterans Association a million men came up to his funeral. He was their general um the 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 British view after World War one was not so much. My God, that was so horrible, we must never do that again. It was, we won. The German view was, next time.
1: Next time, yeah. Well, you know, this reminds me of something that one of my favorite thinkers, and I think the wisest person, uh, intellectual, I guess I would say, uh, whom we had or have and that is Tocqueville Duncan. and he said at least he's reported to have said I don't know you never know about these things <clears> but he said you know it's very hard to get a democracy and when he uses the I don't not sure he uses the word democracy but he means a a, a mobilized nation uh into yes. a war it's very hard to get them in and it's harder to I, get I them out
2: and, and it's <laughs> yeah. not just democracies i think that's true um, I think that's a characteristic, um, democracy. I mean, people, you know, the theorists are out there saying we have the democratic peace. If all nations were democratic, we would have a peaceful world and so forth. And there may be something, something to that, although the, the numbers are very small, the interactions of democracy are very small. And historically, they've all been on the same side against common enemies. So it's not really been tested yet, but, um, yeah. But, but it's nation That's it's right. Nations. You know,
1: once, you, yeah, once you get a nation, uh, democratically constituted, uh, probably ethnically constituted in the case of European ones
2: into a war. It's yeah, very. Yeah. I'm not even sure to say I'm not even sure the yeah. democracy really applies there. I think it's the national. Yeah, the nationalism. I do so And again, it's the nationalism.
1: Well, in his and 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 Tocqueville's vocabulary was was right. was, was different. Time. I mean, he uses the word democracy he means equality, and but he means a, sort of uh, it is nationalism. He meant a
2: representative and sort and of so. social. You know.
1: Uh, That's right. When everybody is a Frenchman, or everybody is an Englishman, or everybody is a yeah. German. When you're not fighting the king's
2: and, wars. And, you're fighting the no, nation's wars, and that, of course, had your been, war, you right? And that had started God. really with the French Revolution, somewhat before, but really with the French Revolution. I mean, I mean, the great revolution turning a thing upside down, to revolving it upside down. I mean, I think the the enormous shift which separates all wars in the modern period, really post French Revolution, from wars that went before, although there's some overlap, is this idea that before the French Revolution, you were the subject of the king. And it was the king's war and the king's cloth and the king's army. Now you're a citizen soldier. You have a stake in the war. The army passed. You have have a duty duty and a stake. But also you have a stake and you can gain from it. And that takes us back closer to the old Roman ideal where, you know, um, you had a a chance to benefit from this. And you saw a benefit. And, you know, you didn't see a battle reported in the newspaper as the King's War taking place far away in a place you didn't care about. You started cheering for it. It was your team. And there's a tribalism and naturalism. You know, we can get two pop psychology about this, but I think it's all it's all there.
1: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the end of World War One. I. I know we've taken up a lot of your time already, no, no, no. but this is fascinating. So the um you know my understanding and I don't study World War One is that the Germans were just exhausted and that they did just kind of walk yeah. away from the trenches. They said, let's have an armistice, and we're done, and everybody just started to go
2: home. Well, uh, is, is that yeah, right? that's, correct. that's a, correct, but let me just give you a little context, which is in the spring of 1918, the Germans had knocked the Russians out of the war, so they're able to move a million men from the Eastern Front back to the Western Front. They're going to try and rush them into battle again. Let's win quickly before the Americans can arrive in large enough numbers, large enough mass that numerically we're overbatched again. So they hurled it and they launched five what they called the five spring or kaiser offensives of of nineteen uh eighteen this is the spring uh, from, offensive the spring, spring offensive off, yeah, they go into the yeah. they go into the early summer yeah. uh and uh they hit the British twice, they knocked the British for six i mean they 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 hit them very badly. the French reinforced and essentially uh it 's an allied uh, defense, and the French reinforce the American role is to move into former French sections in quieter areas, allowing veteran French troops to go up and help the British who are fighting the. so the Germans hit the British twice the French saved the British essentially um, and the German commander Ludendorff, who is utterly tactically inept uh or oper- or strategically inept, I should say. Um, it decides, well, I have to stop the French from helping the British. (laughs) So he hits the French in the next two offensives. And then the fifth one lasts only four days against the French and the Americans. By this point, the Germans have punched three, what in World War II we'd call bulges in the line, three salients in the line, which means you have fewer German troops holding longer territory, more Allied troops holding lesser territory because the straight line is shorter than a bent line. All right. Then the Allies counterattack. This is when you're, what you just said, comes into play. The the Allies counterattack, they hit the hinges of the salient. This is where the Americans start attacking with the French against one of the salients. And the German army begins uh, to retreat. Um, And it is an orderly retreat to begin with, but eventually they're kind of running for the Rhine. Uh, This is August, September uh, into October. Um, In September, the military tells the government in Berlin, it's over, we've lost. Cut a deal, and the negotiations start, but they don't uh come to the armistice agreement until uh, November eleventh uh, so so they are they're out of the trenches, they're heading for the Rhine, but the war is still going to end with not a single allied boot on German soil anywhere. The Germans will still not have reached the Rhine, and that is going to play into the Nazi and other revisionist ideas which which Ludendorff plays a role um, that we weren't defeated uh that um uh, we were stabbed in the back. It's the so-called Dolchdust, the, the stab in the back. Who stabbed us? The Jews and the Socialists. And then you get you into the 1920s. With, mm-hmm. with and that this is a very common
1: impression in Germany is that they didn't really lose. There was it, it, there, there was there was something that was. Underhanded about the whole common thing.
2: among millions of veterans, one, yeah. millions of veterans. This was not just the Nazi point of view. We associated it with the Nazis because they will ride it into power eventually. But this was a commonplace uh, view. We beat the Russians. Uh, we were uh, betrayed, um, and so on. Um, and uh, this is going to play into the idea that they can win again, especially the officer corps. That they can win again in World War II, uh, because uh, after all, look how look how close we came to Paris in 1914, and again in 1918. Uh, we could see the church spires in the distance. I tell you, the Germans are going to get into something of a habit in the first half of the 20th century of seeing yeah, other people's no, well defended capitals in the distance uh, and never, quite, yeah, and never yeah. quite get there. So I I want
1: to draw a kind of analogy, and I think for the listeners they may understand this. And I say this as somebody who's listening say my. Dad was in the military and my uncle fought in Vietnam. But, you know, this notion that somehow you didn't lose something that you obviously lost is alive in America because you'll you'll still hear this debate about whether we somehow lost the Vietnam War when
2: it's pretty obvious that we lost well, the that it was War. Well, I was actually on, I was on a panel about, about in February. <laughs> I was on a panel here at BU, which a colleague of mine wrote a book uh, essentially arguing that not only could the Americans have won the Vietnam War, that it was a moral war worth fighting. and should have been, well, It should have been waged and it could have been won. Um, and it was important and, uh, to win it and vitally important and so on. And uh, I, I just think it's just wrong all, all down the line. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would set aside the moral aspects of it and the geopolitical aspects.
1: Right. Of it, but the fact of the matter is, is we left. <laughs> defeated. That, that pretty much, defeated. yeah, defeated. We
2: were defeated there. We left, yes. And it and, was defeated um, by, in a war of attrition. Uh, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a right. proxy war of attrition, but it was a war of attrition nonetheless. I don't mean to say that everything the Americans did in Vietnam was immoral. I don't want to leave your your listeners with that impression. Uh, but 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 I'm saying the the um I mean it's 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 a hell of a claim to make uh, when you leave three million dead behind.
1: Yeah, and again, this notion still survives, and it's very attractive for Americans, and I include myself as one of them that somehow. We just didn't quite do it right. Had we had we to
2: do it again, well, we'd get it all right. This it's the tinkering it with history. Well. This is the yeah. tinkering with the and, and tinkering with and also it's almost always well. Uh, for example, the main argument on this this panelist made was we should have put three divisions across the uh, across the Laotian border and cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, there goes the dog. You might have
1: to edit. There's the dog. To keep the dog. We're out. gonna keep the dog. Spontaneity and podcasts. That's what we. <laughs> like. It's a rescue dog. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's a risk. Okay, so yeah, no, I I read a lot of this stuff myself because I I've written some
2: uh, history of uh, the right. Vietnam conflict, and and I know that this idea is alive. It's well, it's, it's actually a, it's, it's a big idea right now. There's like books and books coming out about sort of how the Vietnam War was winnable war and so on. And I think it's partly driven. I'm guessing you would know better than I do. I think it's been driven by the current uh, policy debates in Washington over whether or not the wars in Afghanistan and the greater Middle East are winnable or whether we should be making a strategic withdrawal. I think that's what's pushing well, the story debate. Yeah, I think it is. And I think
1: it's appropriate that we look back at Vietnam and see exactly what we did and how it worked or did not work. And so it does have relevance to the modern context. So it's good sure. that people are looking at those things. I mean, my own conclusion on the Vietnam conflict is essentially you would have to invade North Vietnam and then maybe
2: – yes. But, <laughs> that but that comes in its And own the reason the reason we didn't do it is because we had done it in Korea and look what happened. Right. And and that did not turn with China. And well. this time no. we're going to talk about yeah, China yeah, with nuclear weapons, we're yeah. not doing it. Right. Uh, which is why I think so, Korea anyway, that needs a... to be seen together uh as strategically linked. Mm-hmm. Uh tactically yeah. different, operationally different, but strategically the
1: thinking was linked. Yeah, so let's let's go on to um World War Two, which I actually know quite a bit about. And and I want to hear you talk about uh Specifically, the very interesting and totally baffling uh, French mm. campaign in, starting in uh, May 1940, it May 10th, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, and the Germans win quite quickly. How the hell did that happen?
2: Uh, I think, well, the way I put it, you know, in the book, for want of a better phrase, is they rolled the iron dice repeatedly in that campaign, and they kept coming up sixes for just one size, yeah. which almost never happens in war. So, look, yeah. I mean, it's an explanation historians don't like. They got lucky. Yeah, They weren't true. actually pl- – I mean, in World War One, they were planning to knock out the French, defeat the French in 45 days in the Schlieffen oh. plan and so on. They had no comparable <laughs> plan to do that in 1940. They were actually just trying to reach the coast so that they could set up um, uh, air, airfields and long-range artillery and so forth and shell Britain, which they saw as the major opponent. Um, they weren't actually trying to take Paris. Um, but it's a combination of, um, allied, uh, mistakes, uh, German generals, uh, disobeying, literally disobeying their orders yeah. and pressing Guderian and, uh, and Rommel less important, but Guderian was the most important of these panzer, but the whole panzer corps. Uh, pressing ahead lying to his headquarters he actually was putting uh signalers behind saying i'm here when he was 50 or 80 miles ahead of that position so that they wouldn't order him to stop uh even hitler ordered the tanks to stop not once but twice uh and he was disobeyed and did the, were the german generals shot by the by by, by hitler after no they were rewarded Uh, because it worked. Um, It's the kind of um, operational flexibility that the Germans built in and that many have admired, including American military theorists, have admired in the German way War, war um, and tried to emulate in some extent, but no other allied army was going to allow this. I mean, any Russian general who had done that was going to get shot. Any American general did it was going to get fired. Um, it was, it, it worked until it didn't work. Uh, and then the Germans ran into the more fundamental realities of the war, which was, I don't care how good your general is. I don't care how dexterous your panzer corps are. Other guys can make tanks too. Other guys can uh, make bigger armies, and the coalition you've brought into existence by your aggressive foreign policy is overwhelming, and you cannot win.
1: Well, let's get to the part where it didn't work, and that um, really – It's, it's Russia. Russia, yeah, when they attacked Russia on June 22nd, 1941. What did they hope to do
2: there? The same thing they they were going to they were going to punch holes in the, the the Russians were in a hard crust defense so they had most of their um uh, well the, first of all the Germans underestimated Soviet the Red Army's size by 50% that is there were twice as many Russian divisions Soviet divisions as the German military intelligence estimated it's got completely wrong um but the, about a third of the Soviet forces were lined up along the hard shell border. That's because Stalin was in alliance, uh, de facto alliance with Hitler from 1939 to 1941, including spheres of influence agreement, division of Poland, division of the, uh, uh, the three Baltic states, um, divisions of territories from Romania and other countries. Um, and he was looking for more of this economic agreement, even military agreements, um, and they're on a hard crust defense because Stalin has moved his troops forward to occupy these new territories he's at he has an X, and also it's kind of a World War I mentality. The German plan is to punch holes, smash through with combined arms, uh aircraft supporting tanks, supporting mechanized and motorized infantry, the so-called Panzer Grenadiers, um, punch holes through fat out uh you create flanks by punching a hole uh then you fat out in the rear area you envelop those russian armies along the frontier in these great kessels or cauldrons and you crush them you boil them alive and you and they largely did that uh in the opening campaigns um but there's more russia and there's more russians uh always and they keep penetrating deeper and deeper and deeper um But this is where, uh, once again, the Germans are attempting something that logistically they knew was impossible. Their logistic officers were consulted before they invaded Russia, and they were told, we can support essentially one major thrust about 800 kilometers deep. They tried three. And they just, there weren't enough Germans, there weren't enough tanks, there weren't enough aircraft, there were too many Soviets, too many Russians, and after the initial collapses, um mostly of territories that were non ethnically Russian once the rush German armies start to hit Russia proper resistance starts to harden logistics uh the tanks are wearing out the aircraft are wearing out uh the Soviets are fighting like demons uh and uh the Germans are bogged down in a war of attrition that they fundamentally can't win and as you said earlier, really um it's over by the Battle of Moscow in the fifth of November. 5th of December, uh, 1941, and arguably even World War II has been lost by the Germans, except most of the killing and dying still lies ahead. But strategically, they can't win after that. Yeah, and they have no plan for
1: exit at all. There's no, there's no notion that, okay, we're going to stop here now. We'll, uh, we're going to withdraw. No, it's it
2: just or, keep going. But, I mean, Russia's 11 and a half time zones deep. Where are they going? Where are they going? I mean, the Soviets were actually uh, had plans in, in, in uh, that were beginning to be implemented to evacuate Moscow, uh, lose the central cities, lose most of Western Russia, and fight on at the Volga. How many Germans are there? I mean, how, I mean, and then uh, they're already fighting the greatest. Think of it. The Germans have started in World War II. The Germans take on, they defeat one of these opponents, but they have taken on the largest sea empire in the world, the largest empire in the, in the history of the world in the British Empire they have taken on the french empire not an insignificant force they have taken on the russian empire and they will eventually take on the american empire is it any wonder they lost there's just yeah, no, no really there's true. no wonder that they lost i mean it really it's it's not even most people weren't even really surprised the germans lost but the the war went on longer than people anticipated partly because of the dexterity of germans uh, in, in military operations at least initially but also just the the fanaticism of the resistance um, because this was a true total war, the like of which the world had never seen, and in the end of the day, we dropped virtually all restraints as well, and we destroyed their cities, and we bombed their population deliberately. Um, yeah, one of the one of the things I liked
1: about your book is, and I think I said this to you in an email, is, is that there are um, mentions of certain things. Let's put it that way: theses that have been forwarded by various scholars in the text. You don't, you're not very, very explicit about about who you're talking to here. But um, so one of them, and you just mentioned it, is that it is kind of a war like no other war. But there's this notion that somehow uh, that the war in the East, the, uh, the Germans and the Russians, that somehow became barbaric. It was barbarized. But one of the things your book points out, it it it, it was always pretty barbaric. Yeah. Well, I war, mean, even World War I was pretty uh, barbaric. Sure.
2: And World War Two <laughs> did have a, an exceptional character because the difference is in World War One. It is with, with exceptions, in it, it, the Armenian exception being the most notable. You are its armies fighting armies in World War II. The vast majority of the dead are civilian, and they're targeted. They're targeted for starvation. They're targeted for explicit elimination through active genocide measures. Um, I mean, look. I mean, the United States ran a submarine blockade of Japan that brought starvation to the home islands of Japan. It was codenamed. Operation Starvation. We were more honest in those days. The campaign to destroy German cities, uh, I think it was Hamburg, I'd have to double check, was codenamed Operation Gomorrah. The Allies knew what they were doing. We're going to bring pillars of fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, The gloves were
1: pretty much off.
2: And, you know, this is kind of the,
1: uh, it's the natural culmination of, you know, a battle of nations.
2: They pulled us into the gutter. We got into the gutter, though.
1: And we're going to fight
2: like. And we've had a knife fight in the gutter. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I I really, I tell my students sometimes, they don't quite believe me. I tell my students, in my view, I think for a brief period in the 1940s, civilization stopped. We just got off and said, we have to do what we have to do. We did it. it. (laughs) We did it. And we've been trying to put it back together ever since. I was going to say, because,
1: you know, St- Churchill's often held up as the greatest statesman of the 20th century, so on and so forth. Although I often say about Churchill is he got everything wrong except the one thing that really mattered. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which, which is important in life. <laughs> yes. He got the one thing that he needed to get right, yeah, right. He got
2: empire but, uh, wrong. It, he got India wrong. Yeah, he,
1: got, he got everything wrong except the one thing he needed to get right.
2: Well, I'd and, say 2 th- uh, I'd say two things. I'd say he got the Nazis right and he got the Soviet Union right.
1: Yeah, okay, but he—it's uh, interesting to hear his uh, what he says in his kind of Tischbrach, I to use a Hitlerian yeah. analogy about what he says about bombing German cities, and
2: he just doesn't give a f- no.
1: He doesn't care. No,
2: he just does not care one bit. Roosevelt too. Roosevelt too <laughs> talked about yeah. we, not, we must we must conduct mass slaughter. He actually used the word slaughter.
1: Yeah, yeah he did. He was not at all sympathetic at, at, with the Germans, and he just wanted to kill as many of them as possible. And you know, the Soviets were famous for this because they had, you know, they kill a German today kind of campaign
2: and Comrade uh, Kill Your German, yeah, was one of their they, slogans. Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: They yeah. So they they did it too. So let's move on to the um uh the Pacific Theater very quickly. And here I, as again we had an email correspondence, and that the sort of most delusional short war thinking happened in Japan.
2: Why? I think that it's something that we haven't quite I haven't quite mentioned yet is I think the short war delusion can be a universal problem. Major powers like the United States can have it in Iraq. I mean, it, it's, not a, it's not confined to weaker military powers, but it takes its most extreme form when you're a military power on the cusp of something bigger, some great power status, but you're not quite there yet. And I talked about you the, the temptation, the allure of battle, and I, I, I kind of use that term deliberately because I think people are seduced into war uh, by, the, by this short war allure. Um, the Japanese uh, and the Germans also, You don't think of the Germans as a weak military power because we see all those silly newsreels on the History Channel that say things like, the greatest, the greatest military machine ever, ever built. No, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. They, they, they were hardly modern when they started the Second World War. They were under armed, under-equipped, under-financed you uh, know which is why the generals in 1938 were going to take Hitler out uh, at Munich. And in the end, they got in the end, they got drugged. Uh, the destroyed, got destroyed, drummed. and occupied yes. for fifty <laughs> years. I mean, it's a, it is one of the great catastrophes of all modern military history. Um, And the Japanese are even worse because they're an even weaker military power. Um, But they also have the misfortune of winning two early wars, just as they're emerging into their modern period, uh, against larger regional powers, but each of which is special circumstances. The first one is against China. China is collapsing at the time, but it's a much larger power than Japan, and no one really expected the Japanese to win in the first Sino-Japanese War. It was a close-run thing, um, and really the Chinese were simply more ineffectively led and, and collapsed more quickly than the Japanese did, but it was appalling on both sides. Then they defeat the Russians in 1904 to 1905. At sea, they certainly earned a victory at Tsushima Strait. Uh, they smash the Russian fleet uh, completely on land. It's a closer run thing. There's heavy casualties. The Japanese are stunned by how many people are killed by the newfangled machine guns and heavy artillery and all of the rest of it and so on. But in culturally, the way it's sold to the people, the way it's sold to the officer corps, the way it's sold to the elite is Japan has emerged as a new world power. The first occasion world power, by the way, of it. Um, and it has done so in war it has defeated a major power in China it has defeated a major power in Russia we can beat anybody and that delusion just becomes I think um, I don't know, I, I, it's really almost psychotic by the end of the, uh, of the period where I mean the phrase I use I'm not a psychologist but I, I, I can't as an, an ordinary person watching this from the outside I can't phrase it any other way than they fall into a cult of death um, it is a true cult of death. I mean, at the, in 1944 and 45, official slogans are calling for a hundred million deaths, jeweled deaths, they call them. Sort of like the Japanese people, each will shatter like a jewel, um, uh, in, 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 uh, in defense of the, of the home islands and so forth. But at one point, their military is so extreme. It is actively contemplating simultaneous wars against China, Russia, the United States, and Britain. I I know nothing to compare to that in in any, all of history. I know nothing that compares to that um, intellectual extremism. Um, And it may be, and this is where the Japanese leave me baffled in ways that other players, God help me, I understand the Nazis. Help me, I understand the Red Army. The Japanese, it's harder to understand. And I've spoken with Japanese historians, and there's a religious element uh, in the Japanese um, approach to war in the first half of the 20th century. That is not there with other countries that is is pre-modern in a way and makes it harder for them to understand what they're doing, how they're behaving in an utterly modern conflict but that I, I say that is like more than what how I can't explain it than, than I am trying to explain it mm-hmm. and and after Pearl Harbor it
1: goes awry very quickly six months. It, it, yeah, it's six months. It's, it's, uh, yeah. That's, Spectacular that's victory,
2: that. victory after victory after victory. The so-called hundred. I mean, they defeat the British. They defeat the, they defeat everybody, they defeat the Americans. Uh, the Americans are expelled from the Philippines, expelled from the islands, expelled the Australians. By the way, the Australians are a forgotten American ally. Into 1943, there are more Australians fighting in the South Pacific than Americans. Uh, and they, they fight some pretty horrific battles against the Japanese way into 45, but they're in the Southern Islands and so we kind of forget them. A New Guinea, and yeah, the exactly. Solomons. But, but they, 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 again,
1: it's all over pretty quick. I mean, after Pearl Harbor, yeah. which, as you point out, I, I never really thought about this about Pearl Harbor, but the, they, those battleships were sunk in a
2: very shallow water, so they were raised. I think, <laughs> I think only two of them were permanently sunk except the battleship.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, One blew up and one tore but The other thing was that the, the battleships were all out of date,
2: and actually the yeah, sinking of the American battleships, in an irony that nobody really wants to admit, freed the American carriers, which were much faster than the battleships. It wasn't until later in the war, the Americans built what were actually called fast battleships that could keep up with the carriers. The carriers were just much faster ships. So the carriers now took off on carrier escort groups with cruisers and heavy cruisers and destroyers that could keep up with them, where the old battleships couldn't. And the old battleship navies that both sides had built were proven to be, you know, one of the great anachronisms of the 20th century. Uh, And it became, as you know, the Civil War became the quintessential carrier war on both sides.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one of the things you point out in the book, which I'd actually read before in another book, a recently published book, I don't remember the name of it on the the war at sea in World War II, and that is that uh, within a year... The Japanese had this far-flung empire with troops stationed all over Southeast Asia and some parts of China and so on and so forth. But they couldn't actually move between those places because the Americans controlled the water.
2: Well, they had they – they, the Americans controlled – well, the carrier forces, they had – they could come in and they could threaten you at any point with sort of dash raids, carrier raids, they call them. Uh, and then the progressive American uh, – basically take your protractor, find an island – put the air uh, coverage uh, and see what islands fall under that, that's the next island you take. And so you're leapfrogging yes. across island the Pacific yeah. under air cover, carrier air cover, and then to give you land-based air cover and so forth. The Japanese are trying to supply island garrisons by submarine for heaven's sake.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I remember
2: this, yes. And that, that's just Later amazing. in the war, they're experimenting with potato gasoline for fuel for their fleet. I mean, this is just yeah. so preposterous right. that at the in end, the their, their great yeah. prideful carrier fleet is is sent out in the last battles of the war without aircraft. They use their carriers as bait at Leyte Gulf. The Americans take it. And it's a near-run thing. It's a complicated battle. But but the Japanese, the pride of the fleet, the pride of the, of the Japanese nation are, are, are these aircraft carriers that have no aircraft on them because of Japanese production. The Japanese are moving what little production of aircraft they have left in forty-four and forty-five inside Japan. They are moving crated aircraft on ox carts. The Americans and the British are moving vast armadas by land, air, and sea across all the world's oceans. It's just, it's a preposterous idea that the Japanese could have taken. I mean, they they had a, Japan was not a fully industrialized nation. It's not the modern Japan we think of today. It was not an industrialized nation. It was like Italy. It was largely a peasant country, 70% 70 peasant country, with a small industrial modern base inside it, but not enough to take on true industrial powers. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we leveled their cities. Yes, we leveled more cities in Germany. though. Yeah, we leveled more cities in
1: Germany, but we leveled their cities. And we killed a lot more Germans in Germany. Yeah, we killed a lot more Germans. And then we dropped atomic bombs. Yes. Them. Yes. Um do you have and any... we were
2: going to drop more.
1: Yeah, and we were going to drop more. Uh and I don't believe there was a lot of debate about it. Is that uh, uh, I, I don't know what the current thinking on that is, but it seems like the logical thing to
2: Well, think. that's another issue. That, I mean, I think I think the atomic bomb issue uh and this as, as a teacher, as a history teacher, I tell you this that the atomic bomb issue has been distorted. I think uh, it's changing now. It's been distorted in the historiography, it's been distorted in the way it's been taught because what happened is the Cold War comes along so quickly that the atomic, there was a revision of sort of leftist literature that wrote about the atomic bombs, that they were the first act of the Cold War. So they were interpreted as, we dropped them to impress the Soviets. They were not. They were the last act of World War II. And I think that's a critical difference, I mean, to, to understanding how the morality of destroying cities and populations had already been eroded. It was gone. I mean, it was gone over Germany. Japan was just the last adversary standing. Um, And, I mean, had Germany Germany still been in the war, I have no doubt that those bombs would have gone over uh, Frankfurt or Bresden or whatever. I have no doubt. Mm -hmm. That's what they were intended for. I want to come back to
1: another thing. This sort of an it, it's sort of an inside commentary for people that read a lot of military history. And this is the section of the book. It's only a few pages where you talk about the war without mercy. And yeah. anybody who reads a lot of military history will know what that is. That's a book, right. and um, yeah, and a very famous book, and a book that's probably still taught a lot. John Dowler, uh, yeah. And you have some particular things about, and the thesis of this book is essentially that. Well, I don't know. I'll let you, Adam, break the thesis. But it, then you have some things to say about it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah.
2: Well, the war. I mean, in, in, in that's that's a famous book that argued that the um, Pacific War was 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 in its essence a race war, and attributed most of the racism to the United States to Americans. So, it's, so the idea is that we bombed their cities and we dropped the atomic bombs and we did all these horrible things. We did. In the pacific and we did horrible things um and we did it because they weren't white and i think once again you see i think this is retroactive reading into the history of world war ii um the history or maybe the myths of korea and vietnam the idea that well americans will will terror bomb asian nations um and uh and i I just think it largely misses the point which is that the, the race was a racism of the Pacific. Absolutely. Uh, and it was on both sides, but there was just heavy racism uh, right across the board in the Pacific war. No doubt. Um, but I think the racism is explained by the war rather than the war explained by the races. Uh, it seems to me an unnatural thing to expect to send your heavily armed teenagers into a battle to kill his heavily armed teenagers and that they won't call each other nasty names while they're there. Uh, and I, I don't mean to belittle yeah, no, uh, know. racist yeah. term, terminology, but I mean, I really think that the sort of search for sort of racist epithets and things like that in the in the literature and in the diaries is, is to miss the point. We're talking about hate. That's the bigger problem. And the real race war in the Second World War anyway wasn't in Asia. It was in right. Europe, where the Germans actually said, according to your quote-unquote race... You will be Yeah, you didn't,
1: you know, again, in an armed conflict like this, especially one that's as violent as the Second World War, you didn't need to look to race for reasons to uh, shoot people who were shooting at you. Uh, not at all.
2: No, not really, no, no. Nor do you in any war. I mean, you, you can you look, look at the way the French behaved in the Peninsular War in, 18, in 1810, and I see exactly the same phenomena that I see on, on Guadalcanal. I mean, I, I just don't see, I think the hate is produced by war. Uh, I think the hate then washes over the world after these wars. One of the reasons to avoid wars is that the generations of hatred that are then taught after the war that survive in living memory and at the dinner table, uh, and in the mosque and the synagogue and the church, um, that, uh, I, 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 but it seems to me that historians are, have got the carpet for the horse on this one. The, the phenomenon of hate, um, most wars do not begin in hate. They begin in all kinds of miscalculation, misunderstanding, vanity. I think is, is is one of the huge explanations. They end up in hate. Yes, they do.
1: I I don't think there's any doubt about that. There's no question that when people start to shoot at you, you start to dislike them a lot, uh, really a lot, and for obvious reasons.
2: Right. When your best friend's exactly. brains are all over no, your white. No, pants. you don't like the uh, of the suddenly no, it's, you know, it's a different. Right. Thing. That be, yeah. Well, yes, it's it a is. lot different than when you were eighteen, thinking about you know, you know. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. So I would we've taken up a lot of your time,
1: but there's a thought that I've had for a, I've taught military history quite a bit, and and I, I've never seen any writing about this, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. That essentially, it's very hard in the modern era, and I mean the post revolutionary era, to occupy a country. It's just almost impossible, and I mean, really, it, there there's I think t- there's only really two exceptions, and that's Germany and Japan, and we leveled their cities in order to do it but it,
2: they knew they would be
1: yeah and boy did they know it um but generally speaking if you go to a place like afghanistan or vietnam or i don't know iraq and these are nations uh have, they have national identity uh they have their own elites and so on, so forth, that occupying a nation is just not really something that you can do anymore is that
2: how- and uh, occupying it with the notion that you're going to Make it and them better. Yeah, people, I don't. I think is maybe one of the great delusions of the last fifty six. Yeah,
1: I, I really, I really wonder about this because I was like, "What were the Germans going to do with France?" I mean, clearly the French weren't going to let them stay, even if they tried. Oh uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, but the, 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 <laughs> one of the reasons France was relatively quiet for much of the war was the Germans kept the entire captured French army hostage in Germany. There was like one point two or one point three million French. So everybody had a husband or a son or a father in German captivity who were literally kept hostage against the good behavior of France. Yeah,
1: but this seems to me to be another kind of illusion that you can go in, even as a Weltmacht like the United States, and take yep. over an entire nation, say, I don't know, Afghanistan or Iraq or something, and then just Iraq's kind of control than. it. You, you can't control an entity that big except by bankrupting yourself. I mean, I suppose you could, or you could level their cities or you could deport everyone. or you, These are just moral costs then, that we're if, just not going to
2: pay. If they have a long war view, they know that in the end, it's not your country, you're going and to leave. And this was just, ho- they yeah, know. this was the North
1: Vietnamese's line just from That's the, the Vietnamese. They were That's just the like,
2: Vietnamese we know you're really... going to leave. I mean... It's... And by the way, people have studied the, Ameri- the Vietnam War besides Americans and they have drawn different lessons than many maybe the Americans have drawn from the Vietnam War and they've drawn the... the conclusion sometimes it's wrong but they've drawn the conclusion that you can wait the americans out you're going to have to endure it's going to cost you an awful lot of your young men um it's going to be a horrible tragic thing but they will go home yeah that is yeah are they wrong are they wrong aren't we going to leave around we're gonna going yeah, to leave yeah no, I, I no we're leaving
1: sooner <laughs> we're rather leaving. than later perhaps. yeah we're leaving so they can yep. definitely wait well Anyway, Cat Hill, it's been really great talking to you. I love the book. The name of the book is The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost. And you can actually learn in this book how wars are won and lost. And, and it's a really terrific book. And I really enjoyed talking to you today. And, and I want to uh, thank you for being on the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me as a guest.
1: Absolutely. And I want to say to everybody who listens to the New Books Network, thank you for listening to us. You can go to iTunes and subscribe or Google Podcasts to subscribe. And actually, there are a bewildering number, number of subscription choices these days. I kind of feel sorry for all the listeners, but I, I hope that you do take the time to go and subscribe to the channel and we enjoy it. We, we appreciate your support. Thanks very much.